I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the first amendment speaks to dignity the first amendment to the u.s constitution infused the new nation with a fundamental tension regarding religion congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion end of quote that's in there and that means the united states unlike any other western country at the time would be officially secular Church and state were separate entities that had to respect each other's separate authority. And the First Amendment also has a second clause. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Religious people were free to worship, free to lobby our elected leaders, and free to argue for their agenda, as they still are. Of course, on such hot-button values oriented and religious oriented issues of abortion and marriage equality there has been no lack of arguments relative to public policy various religions have strong opinions on all sides of such social issues and public policy has certainly been affected in state and national legislatures and in the courts a big part of the image the world has had of america is the powerful influence of our large christian evangelical communities in the Washington Post article, our guest Alicia Kaufman co-wrote with Anya uh, Maria Basimir. She points that points out that white evangelicals voted voted eighty four percent for Richard Nixon in nineteen seventy two and eighty percent for Donald Trump in twenty sixteen, and many of the leaders stood by Nixon as scandals swirled around him, just as they have with Trump. That is a big factor in their political power. The title of the piece that she wrote that sparked the idea for the show is White Evangelicals Once Admitted They Were Wrong About Nixon, Will Trump Come Next? And I suppose a follow-up would be, when? What will it take? What did it take for the change of heart on Nixon? With the impressive amount of daily lies, with his boastful background of what many would consider inappropriate sexual behavior and his attitudes toward racial minorities and dark-skinned immigrants, where are evangelicals now on our current president? Is there movement away from solid support of this president? If not, why not? Are evangelicals of one mind, or are there factions which may disagree with other factions? With us to enlighten us on these and other questions is Alicia Kaufman. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, glad to talk with you. Alicia Kaufman is Assistant Professor of History at Baylor University and author of The Christian Century and the Rise of the Protestant Mainline, put out by Oxford University Press. She's currently writing A Spiritual Life of the Anthropologist Margaret Mead. Yeah. Between undergraduate studies at Wheaton College and Ph.D. work at Duke University, Alicia worked for five years at the evangelical publishing company Christianity Today. So she has a 
good perspective, a good uh, uh, optic on the issue. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And evangelicals in both cases, Nixon and Trump, were certainly a very important factor in their winning. Why did white evangelicals embrace Nixon and Trump? What were the factors, do you think? Well, there's a lot of historians of religion that are working hard on this. Um, And I would say some of the work that I've seen that I find particularly persuasive, uh, Kristen Cobes de May has a forthcoming book, I think it's going to be called Jesus and John Wayne, where she argues that since World War II, uh, white evangelicals have been looking for a tough guy who will fight for them who they wanted someone to fight against kind of changed, communists, feminists, black power, terrorists, liberals, but it's consistent that white evangelicals are looking for a fighter. Um, And there's another strain of scholarship. Here I'm thinking of Kevin Cruz, his book One Nation Under God, or Darren Dochuk's brand new book Anointed with Oil, that brings up this sort of economic libertarian strain in white evangelicalism. So they want a leader who will lower their taxes, who will reduce regulation, and just let businessmen be businessmen. And in, on both of those sides, the sort of culture wars, somebody to fight for us side, and the let businessmen be businessmen, you have a, a strain of white patriarchy, white men uh-huh. wanting to be uh, given political power to do what they think is best for everyone. Aha, uh-huh. that, yeah, that's an interesting factor, because I noticed as you were talking there, white men businessmen and the patriarchy thing that's been there for a long time and it you know it's it's not just with evangelicals but they're certainly that's a big part of well the cultural wars that have been going on for quite some time and they felt threatened in 1972 for sure with all the uh all us folks out on the streets my hair was longer then uh and uh just some reassurance and I think uh, playing, you know, a, a, a minister a long time ago, actually a friend of mine said, there's two things that really matter in politics, fear and reassurance. And I think mm-hmm. Trump, uh, uh, Nixon was certainly very reassuring, especially back in the late 60s. Now, not everyone remembers Billy Graham. I wonder if you could please tell us about who he was, his power among evangelicals, and what role he played in creating what you called an off-ramp which helped get Nixon out of the White House. Right. So Billy Graham really was the face of evangelicalism. It was called neo-evangelicalism at first in the 1940s. He was an evangelist, a preacher. He didn't have his own church congregation, but he traveled around the country and around the world having these big evangelistic rallies. Uh, he made great news copy. Journalists loved to talk to him when he would come into town to have a crusade. As part of promoting the crusade, he would talk to all the local reporters about what he was doing, but then they would also ask him about the news of the day. He would, he would speak seemingly for evangelicalism as a tradition. And he was famously friends with, or at least um, had interactions with every president from Truman yeah. on until... Um, not the current president, because uh, Graham is now right. deceased, but um, right, right up until um, certainly George W. Bush, they, were, um, they had a relationship. And Graham was often seen as supporting, blessing what these men in office did. And he, he had friends on both sides of the political spectrum. He was quite close with Lyndon Baines Johnson. But Nixon and his aides were particularly able to use Graham's 
charisma and popularity and um, reputation for being a morally upstanding person to cover for some things that were going on in the Nixon White House. Um, and this, Graham would later say that this was one of the greatest regrets of his life, how close he got to Nixon, how he was blinded to Nixon's flaws, mm. how he stood by Nixon too long and really had allowed Graham's own vision of being an evangelist for God's kingdom to get blurred with becoming a cheerleader for American politics, um, a particular party in American politics. So Graham was not early in jumping ship from Nixon. He was quite late. Mm -hmm. Other evangelicals were voicing a lot of concern, and Graham was trying to say, no, it's okay. It's not, it's not going to go all the way up to the top. I know this guy. It's okay. Mm -hmm. But when Graham decided that standing by Nixon had been the wrong choice, Graham was forthright in saying, yeah, I made a mistake. I never should have done that. And he tried not with perfect success, but tried afterward never to get quite that cozy to a president. Well, it's hard for anybody to acknowledge, especially publicly, that, that their decisions were, you know, in, in light of history, perhaps wrong. I mean, of course, I remember the Watergate hearings and how painful it was for many in the House and the Senate to, to acknowledge that yeah, Nixon had done some bad things. I mean, they, they had put themselves on the line there. That's hard for any human being to do. How, how far along was the Watergate crisis when evangelical Senator Mark Hatfield, a Republican of Oregon, when, as you write, he warned that a bad graft between religion and politics was turning gangrenous? His words on that topic are worth sharing with our listeners, if, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, sure. So, uh, yeah, Senator Mark Hatfield, Republican of Oregon, and also a well-known evangelical at the time, he gave this speech at the Mayor's Prayer Breakfast in Chicago in May 1973. And um, among the things he said there were, we would always rather hide our wounds than heal them. It is always more comfortable to believe in the symbols of righteousness than to acknowledge the reality of evil. This is especially true in our national political life and we have become adroit at manipulating religious impulses in our land to sanctify this political life. And May 1973, uh, those, those of us who did not live through Watergate and were, were looking back at the timeline or listening to that podcast series about it, which was fantastic, it took a long time. It, yes, it unfolded it over a lot of time. The, yes. the first Watergate arrests were back in June 1972, uh, Washington Post is on mm -hmm. the investigative scene for that whole year. Um, the Post keeps reporting, and the people implicated in the scandal keep moving up and up the administration. The trial for the Watergate break-in then began in January 1973, and then May 1973, the same month that Hatfield was giving that speech, that's when Archibald Cox was appointed as the special uh. prosecutor. So it's it's kind of in the midst of the whole story. Some things were known the fact that Nixon was going down was not at all known. No. Um, the outcome of the ongoing investigations was very much in question still. Yeah, it took a long time. I mean, people, it's its hard to admit, you know, that, that uh, somebody that you had a lot of faith in maybe isn't worth uh, that, that faith. But Hatfield also touched on a key element of Christianity, and you started to talk about that, I think, confession and repentance. Your article quotes him as saying, we are given a position of leadership. It becomes almost second nature to avoid admitting that we may be wrong. Confessions become, confession becomes equated with weakness. 
It has become a political maxim never to admit that one is wrong. Now that may be wise politics, but it's terrible Christianity. End of his quote. How did how were such words received in the evangelical communities? How did it resonate when he said it in seventy three? And what about now? Right. So Hatfield was sort of on the leading edge of criticism of Nixon within the evangelical community. Hatfield was associated with Jim Wallace. Uh, yes. who was editing a magazine called The Post-American. It was later renamed Sojourners. It's still around. There's yes. a Sojourners Intentional Community in Washington, D.C., a sort of evangelical left that was small but vocal at the time. And when Hatfield is coming out in 1973 saying at the, this prayer breakfast in Chicago and at the National Prayer Breakfast, taking a prophetic stance and challenging Nixon's authority, um, Billy Graham was not comfortable with that. Graham wrote him a letter about the National Prayer Breakfast speech, not the Chicago one that I quoted, saying, like, this is not the time or the place. Like, you're, you're, you're raising some good points, but we don't criticize our leaders that way. Um, so it's, it would be a while until more evangelicals came around to Hatfield's position that, yeah, we made a mistake here. Because, as you said, admitting that you're wrong, especially in something as high stakes as presidential politics, is just really, really, really hard. And I, I wonder about, you know, most politicians, I think, assume, oh, I can't admit I was wrong. I, I have a feeling people understanding human nature would probably respect that and say, you know, I learned, you know, if some politician says, I learned more uh, and... I, you know, I changed my mind. I, mean, I don't, you know, hopefully that's part of human nature. I mean, but the politicians, I guess, have to look strong. And I don't, I wonder about that weakness thing, if that's still as powerful as, as it used to be. I have no idea. But you mentioned uh, uh, Jim Wallace, and uh, I, I read his book about uh, 20 years ago uh, called God's Politics. Very good book. I recommend it. Christianity, of course, has a myriad of important values, even though there are a myriad of different denominations of Christianity. Uh, the common picture of evangelicals is of right-wingers, people motivated powerfully by opposition to abortion and homosexuality. And when I read that book, uh, God's Politics by Jim Wallace, he described, as you said, a left-leaning evangelicalism. One important value to this sector that I find interesting and consistent with my understanding of, of evangelicalism is uh, that we are, we humans are caring stewards for God's creation, the earth. It, it, that's, it seems clear that Trump's position on environmental protection is rather the opposite, just extract and exploit anything and everything for the profit of the big corporate interests. Now, you are in a, a Christian academic environment. What do you know of the discussion within those communities about stewardship of God's creation. Right. There is some discussion, and there are some uh, Christian political scientists, Christian physical scientists. Uh, Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and an evangelical, and so her career is really going to evangelical institutions, having events, trying to convince evangelicals to care about environmental stewardship, creation care, maybe what they would call it. And it seems like that community should be persuadable on that issue. 
Um, they read their Bible about God creating the earth. Um, the idea of stewardship is very strong for them. But I think it runs into that economic libertarian strain um, that I was mentioning earlier, and you can really see it in, in Darren Dochuk's recent book. A lot of evangelicals in the United States have ties to oil money. And oil and extractive industry is not going to be on board with this idea that nature should be cared for and left alone. So if you read the Bible and you think about evangelical worldview theology, it would seem that they, they would be on one side of this issue, but where they are located, um, their attachments politically and economically push them in the other direction. And so far, that's been the stronger force. Well, that's uh, interesting. I, I to I hadn't uh, known or, or even thought about uh, the, the uh, evangelicals' ties to the uh, petroleum industry. I, it seems, frankly, a little bit hypocritical, I would think. But but you talked about uh, uh, economic libertarianism. What what is the, the the you know evangelical basis for that kind of uh, belief? Economic libertarianism. How does that fit in? I wish I had a good answer for that. I, I, again, reading the Bible, looking at Christian theology, it doesn't seem like you're going to come from that tradition and be this this full-throated defense of capitalism, uh, damn the consequences. Um, And again, you have to look at more specific historical location of these people, their institutions, where the money came from. Uh, There's a great book by Alison Green that's looking back at the New Deal and uh, particularly around Memphis, uh, the Delta. And there, she looks at, there were a lot of pastors who were surveyed by FDR saying, you know, what do you think of these New Deal policies? Is this, are you, just, just give us feedback. And initially, these pastors, not exactly evangelical, it's an earlier time period, the labels are going to shift a little bit, but mm-hmm. early on the pastors are saying, this is great, our people were starving, now you're helping them. But as the program goes on, and as the federal government gets more power over more aspects of people's lives, um, their food, their jobs, um, there's housing policies involved, things like that, the pastors start to get resentful at the encroachment on uh. their power. And so, again, this economic libertarian, it it has multiple causes, but the idea that a big federal government is the enemy, um, it's encroaching on what should be the church's sphere, it's going to tell us what to do. More recently, it's going to tell us what to do, like, you have to allow same-sex couples to get married. You shouldn't be discriminating against women or people of color or people of other religions in your religious institutions. The white evangelicals are really going to push back against that. It appears in different forms over time, but they're going to get this idea that big government is bad and independence, um, economic and, and political libertarianism is, is better for them. Fascinating stuff. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive and uh, getting a great view of uh, evangelicalism and the power of supporting Nixon and then Trump. Uh, Alicia Kaufman wrote, uh, white evangelicals once admitted they were wrong about Nixon. Will Trump come next? And talk about culture war. I mean, I've I've been to the uh, former Confederacy, and it does seem that the churches, it's just understood that if you have hard times economically, you go to the church. The church helps you out. It's all about charity. 
you don't look to the government to help you out. Uh, it's interesting. It you kind of uh, back that up what I what I've seen. Now, one of the things that uh, fascinates me, you've probably seen pictures of them. I haven't seen the actual billboards myself, but there are billboards suggesting that Trump was sent by God. He seems to believe it himself, pridefully sharing tweets which refer to him as the second coming and the king of Israel. Uh, Surely that must be making a ripple among Christian evangelicals, though I get the impression they're Many of his supporters that, well, at least some of his supporters actually see him that way. What do you hear among your colleagues on on this particular aspect, his rather inflated claims? There has been some pushback on that. There was a recent article, a man saying, I'm an evangelist and this has gone too far for me. And what's fascinating and deeply disturbing is then the pushback against that, either Trump didn't really say that he was the chosen one. Right, the but king he retweeted it. I mean, come on, he, clearly he was joking. Mm-hmm. Or making these sophisticated biblical theological arguments that, well, yes, leaders have been raised up in different times, and, and this is all fine, nothing to see here. Um, it does not make very much sense to those of us on the outside of that. I think one of the uh, ways you could ex- explain it is that Trump's closest advisors, and he does have some evangelical advisors and fans, a historian John Fia calls them the court evangelicals, like they're, they're entertaining at the king's court, and that was even before these latest claims of king of Israel and stuff. Some of them are sort of in the center of the evangelical tradition as it currently exists, but a lot of his advisors come from a wing um, often called the prosperity gospel, and mm. Kate Bowler has written a lot on this, where earthly success is the clearest sign of God's favor. Um, you have some of these mega churches where the pastors have multiple jets and multiple estates. Mm-hmm. And again, for those of us on the outside, it seems like this is something is clearly deeply wrong here. But within that world, it makes sense. It's okay that a leader has that much money and power. In fact, it's good. It's a sign of God's blessing. So I, I guess within that mindset, it makes more sense, but it doesn't make much sense to me. Well, yeah, but, and I, and you're reminding me of, uh, I, I seem to think that there was uh, something by the, by the Puritans and the Pilgrims, the early white American settlers, who talked about uh, the elect, that if you have money, then you are obviously the elect among God's people. It, so I guess there's a fairly long tradition with regard to that. It, it is interesting. Uh, even though, you know, I, I just, how, if people make money through, through pollution, through, you know, coal, things like that, that are, that are hurting the environment, it's, I don't know, it just, it's sort of a stretch for me to see how that could be consistent with, uh, you know, any kind of real personal deep belief in, in uh, the Bible. I, but then again, I am not an evangelical, uh, as, as you know. Well, your, your article refers to words from Joseph Bailey, columnist for Eternity magazine in 1974. Well, first off, what was that magazine? You know, I had to do some research on this. That um, The beginning of this op-ed was actually Anja Maria Basimer's dissertation right. uh-huh. in Germany, and so she had done a lot of the research into these periodicals. I had heard her give a presentation on it um, here at Baylor back in 2017, and so I followed up with her. She knows more about eternity ah. than I do. It was from the 
Reformed side of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism has multiple theological uh-huh. streams. Um, so it was, it was not a radical magazine. It was not like the post-American at all. It was, it was brainy and thoughtful and took positions on different subjects that maybe weren't always the ones that you would expect, um, but it was a, a theologically sophisticated periodical at the time, um, and, and Bailey was a very popular columnist there. Well, thank you uh, for that, and I know that uh, I, I have no idea how many uh, sects there are within evangelicalism. I know that uh, you know I'm Jewish, and there's a lot of different sects within Judaism, some that seem really very different from the way I was raised, and I imagine that's the case. I mean, in Christianity, there's Catholicism, there's all kinds of Protestant, but uh, any guess how—I mean, I don't know if you can even— guess how many uh, different uh, uh, sectors there are within evangelicalism? Any guess? It kind of depends on which version of the question you're asking. So there are okay. there are different theological positions that to outsiders would seem like extremely fine shades of meaning who could possibly care about this, uh-huh. um, precisely how they understand the inspiration of Scripture or precisely how they understand what's going to happen at the end of the world precisely how they understand uh, Israel as part of God's plan. Um, some of the more obvious differences are churches that will ordain women or not. Um, right. Churches who, if you go to their seminary, you have to read John Wesley versus uh, John Calvin versus some other Martin Luther, some other long-gone theologian. Um, and then there is this whole network of evangelical institutions that understand their position vis-a-vis each other, which colleges are competing against each other for students, or which um, denominations tend to send people to... It's, it is very complicated, and uh-huh. sometimes these differences matter, and sometimes, like when it comes to voting, they don't seem to matter at all. That's interesting. I wonder, uh, any guess, here, here we are guessing again, what percentage of Americans might consider themselves evangelicals? So defining and counting evangelicals, there's a whole cottage industry. How do you figure (laughs) out where they are, who they are? Do you survey them? Do you ask them, are you evangelical or born again? Do you ask them a bunch of questions? Do you believe this about Jesus? Do you Mm. believe this about the Bible? Do you believe this about whatever? Do you look at their membership in different churches? A lot of evangelical churches are non-denominational. Many evangelical oh. churches are completely standalone. They are not formally connected to any other church body. Oh. So depending on how you do the count, the, the number varies, um, and the geographic distribution and the oh, racial sure. distribution. Um, however you count it, evangelicals are probably falling. Um, they're down to with a low 20 percent of of u.s culture and they've just dipped below the nuns n-o-n-e-s people who when surveyed will say they have no religious affiliation that's that's still that's a very large percentage of us it's it's more it's a larger percentage than my people (laughs) than jews i'm (laughs) sure and we started out a couple minutes ago i asked about joseph bailey anyway he wrote i'm getting back to that he scolded his readers for having unwisely joined a cult of the presidency, on end of quote. I see evidence everywhere, or it sure looks like a cult today. How significant is that cult, do you think, among evangelicals? Is it changing? Is it is it static? What's your sense of that cult of the presidency? I mean, I think a lot of us, there's always been a, a uh, longing for a great, strong man leader 
you know, coming in on a, a white horse to, to save us. But back, back to the question, how significant do you think that cult of the presidency is among evangelicals? And has it changed? It has proven very durable. Um, they voted for him at 80%. As his approval rating in various groups has gone down, evangelicals have stayed steady. Now, there's some people who are, are looking at the data and saying, well, evangel- or Christians who don't support Trump are no longer identifying themselves as evangelical. So there has been some erosion, but it isn't showing up because the people who are left as identified evangelicals, by whatever means they're being identified, those are the Trump supporters. But most of all, we have not seen much movement. They are, they are standing by their man. Standing by their man. That was a good old country song, of course. <laughs> I, I remember when Nixon lied back in 73, 74, the entire country was shocked. Oh, my God, the president's lying. It was unthinkable. Now we have a president who seems to lie as a matter of course many times a day. I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if he knows the difference between truth and lies. I'm not sure that he does. What has changed, do you think, between the Watergate era when any lie was an earthquake and today? Do you think the overarching goals that Trump stands for outweigh his questionable uh, morality of dishonesty in the minds of right-leaning evangelicals? Uh, Yes, and there is data to back that up. You don't have to go back as far as Watergate to see um, some astonishing movement on this. Um, I was was pulling up some data before our conversation, so I I would have it in my mind. As recently as 2011, when um, Americans were surveyed, like, how important is personal morality for a public leader? Um, Is it possible for someone to be personally immoral but still a good public figure? As recently as 2011, white evangelicals said that if uh, an elected official commits an immoral act in their personal life, they cannot behave ethically in their public life. They're disqualified. 60%. By 2016, that was down to about 16% saying yes. They completely abandoned that position in order to support Trump. And a recent study was also trying to figure out, well, can we, how much of this is just this partisan identification? So they asked the questions in different sequences. In one version of their study, they're reminding people of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Of course, with the Lewinsky scandal, Mm -hmm. white evangelicals were the ones clamoring for Bill Clinton's head, like he has disqualified himself. He needs to be gone, special counsel. If primed to remember Bill Clinton, these same white evangelicals will say, can a, a privately immoral figure, are they disqualified from public office? 27% 27% of them will say yes. If they're thinking about Clinton, it's still a problem. Not a 60% problem, but still a problem. If primed to think about Trump, only 6% of them say yes. It is straight-up partisan affiliation causing them to throw out their previous concerns about immoral politicians entirely. Uh, I'm sitting here with my jaw dropped to the floor. How? I mean, evangelicals' morality, it's, you know, that's a big deal. <laughs> he, Trump boasted about, obviously, you know, uh, sexual assault. And, you know, he's the, the, the uh, examples of what I would consider immorality are legion. I just, how can evangelicals, I, I just, you know, it's, I would think it's part of 
And again, I'm not, so it's a little hard for me, but I would think that's a big part of the identity of evangelicals. I, I just, uh, th- that's amazing to me that they can just overlook that. Is that start? Do you think it mattered? I, I mean, I was frankly amazed, like probably everybody else was, when that uh, tape came out of the then candidate uh, Trump in, I guess it was 2005, talking about grabbing a woman. Uh, his his support didn't go down at all. Does that have does that stuff have like no effect? Do you think? I mean, I guess it's old news now. Well, there are there are small effects. There were people. Uh, Beth Moore, um, a, a very well known uh, Christian women's speaker. Uh, Russell Moore, no relation, um, uh, speaks on ethics and public policy from the Southern Baptist Convention. There were voices from that Access Hollywood tape forward saying, "This guy's disqualified. We we can't do this. The the cost is too high." Um, their voices are still out there. They have a lot of Twitter followers and such, but it hasn't moved the needle on overall support. And I'm as flabbergasted by it as you are. Um, clearly, some of what uh, Senator Hatfield had said right. that it's just um, it's a political maxim to never admit that you're wrong. Mm. Um, and and there's this whole culture war mindset that. This is our champion. We have to win, whatever cost. Nothing else is important as winning on this one. And so they will overlook, look past anything, and say, well, your side did it too. Oh, right. You excused all this stuff from Bill Clinton. You excused all this. Well, numerically, that's not exactly true, but that's how they see it. This, yeah. is, this is a war, all fair and love and war. The other side does it. We're going to do it. And the fact that they're consuming most of their media from Fox News and oh, other right-wing sources yeah. also eliminates the, the cognitive dissonance. They're, they're getting that position reinforced constantly. Well, yeah, maybe there's bad stuff, but everybody does it, and when the stakes are this high, you just you got to look past it. Everybody does it. Yeah, well, <laughs> we know that's not true. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. I'm having the uh, pleasure of speaking with Alicia Kaufman about fascinating subject, white... Uh, evangelicals once admitted they were wrong about Nixon. Will Trump come next? That was an op-ed in the Washington Post. And talk about the Washington Post. Watergate. After the shock of Watergate and recognition of a seriously flawed president, as you write, Watergate prompted an about-face in evangelical attitudes toward government, end of quote. And yet, only a few years later, as you observe, the hard-won wariness passed. Many evangelicals became even more gung-ho about God's own party, obviously GOP, with President Ronald Reagan in 1980 than they had been with Nixon in 1972. Now, that was just a short time later. How did that come about? Can you describe that process for us? Right. So in the interim, you get Gerald Ford, who uh, did claim to be Christian, but and, and right. I don't say claim to be in like a, I'm not doubting him, but he right. said that he was Christian, yeah. but not of a, a really upfront evangelical variety. And then you get Jimmy Carter, right. who was absolutely evangelical, a Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, still is, yeah. but did not have uh, Republican policy priorities. You get Falwell, moral majority, you get this... Um, really hard-pressing political action group saying, our country's going down the tubes, we need to rally around this particular vision. And you also get a pretty quick historical amnesia. Um, it was, by 1980, it was as if 
Many evangelicals had learned nothing from Watergate, didn't remember it, and that's been reinforced to me since the article came out and watching responses to it in various places, um, not so much the Washington Post site, which which moderates comments, and it's um, it's lovely to see that, <laughs> to see moderated comments rather than the immoderate comments you find a lot of other places, but Facebook conversations, etc. A lot of older white evangelicals insisting, we never changed our minds about Nixon. We, Watergate wasn't that big of a deal. Nixon did lots of good stuff. Like, you're, you're blowing this completely out of proportion. That never happened. We never changed our mind. We never admitted that we were wrong. So yeah. you can conveniently forget those lessons if you'd rather try to win again with somebody like Ronald Reagan. And I have discovered people on, who listen regularly are probably tired of me saying the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. And there's an important element of erasing history. You have to erase history somehow, or certain powers. You, it's just inconvenient facts are just, they're left out. You cannot factor that in. You've got to have the history that you want, the myth, basically. And, uh, you know, talking about Nixon, he, he relied on his silent majority. It was a brilliant term created by his advisor, Pat Buchanan. Trump relied on middle America as well, sort of the silent majority, the people who felt uh, beat up on, that their values uh, were being imposed on when it came to abortion and homosexuality. The so-called moral majority has come and gone, but middle America seems to remain ripe territory for what has come to be known as Christian conservatism. So what about uh, Trump's uh, constant lying, his sexual immorality, we asked about that. But especially, I noticed that 99-year-old Nuremberg prosecutor Ben Ferenz, an American, he, what he called a crime against humanity that is going on now by Trump, the caging of children, the indefinite detention and separation of families. How is all that going down? I mean, for this Nuremberg prosecutor who knows crimes against humanity, for him to call it a crime against humanity, how is all that going down with middle America, the, the Christian conservatives? I'm really curious. They don't pay attention to it. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're watching Fox News, if you're getting right wing, that's not what's leading that coverage. Or if it is, again, it's that everybody does it. Obama did the same thing. Why didn't you complain about that? This is just, this is, we're doing what we have to do to maintain law and order. Um, yeah, they, they find ways to minimize that cognitive dissonance. And one of their sort of defense mechanisms is to say, well, that's political. We're not going to talk about that in our church because that's political, and we want to focus on the gospel instead. And that shading of what constitutes political and doesn't belong in churches comes straight out of resistance to civil rights in the middle of the 20th century. Um, political is that which seeks to change the social order, um, and that just, they, they want to keep that out of their churches. They want to focus on individual sins, individual morality, especially sexual morality. So... They think of themselves as not being political, whereas people outside that community say, wow. you're absolutely political. What, are you kidding me? Oh, my goodness. That is interesting. Well, that's uh, pretzel logic, I guess you call it. But it, it, it seems to work for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, one thing I have wondered about, you know, as you say, there's resistance to changing the social order. 
in your estimation, this may be sort of a hard question to ask, how much of Christian conservatism is really about, I, I mean, the, the, locking the, the dark-skinned people up at the border, putting them in cages, separating families. Uh, they are the other. But it maintains, it, it's protecting, you know, an invasion. What does an invasion mean? That it's a white Protestant male-run country, and that it seems perhaps that that's really what it's about more than than you know religious morality, uh, but just maintaining the social order, the old-fashioned social order of white Christian men have to rule over gay men, over black people, over women. What's your response to that concern? Kristen Gumay's book, uh, forthcoming book that I mentioned at the top of the, the program, really documents how since World War II, and you could trace it earlier, um, white evangelicalism has been constructing this idea of white masculinity and how white men must be in charge. That is God's order for the world. Any deviation from that is, is catastrophic and unbiblical and cannot be sustained. You see it in the way that men's ministries are touted in churches. You see it in their child-rearing advice. You certainly see it in the leadership of the churches. Um, There's been a a meme going around recently joking. There's a a panel event at a church, I think it's in Tennessee, about Christian womanhood with five male speakers. (laughs) And that flies in that community. Um, They're not, of course, going to say, they're not going to see themselves as defenders of white patriarchy. They think of themselves as defenders of traditional family values, um, they're making America great again. I always, when I see people with those hats or something, I always want to ask them, what, what time period exactly do you have in mind? What, what do you mean? It seems to be sort of a 1950s, leave it to beaver kind of household um, when, when supposedly things made sense and families were intact. So it's a it's a nostalgic comfort. Um, this is the way things used to be. We were happy then. Why can't they just go back to the way they used to be, where people were happy and knew their place and mm-hmm. society functioned better? Ah, yes, knew their place. Boy, things were great then, except for the people in the place that they didn't uh, like. And I, I, you know, I wonder about. I've often wondered too about family values, keeping the family together. What about? Domestic violence, when women are beaten, I, 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 I get the sense that it's more important to just obey the man and that uh, that kind of thing is, I guess, acceptable to some people. I have kind of a hard time with that myself, but it's, it's male domination. That's, that's traditional values, I guess. There have been, as I'm sure you know, some recent scandals within the Southern Baptist Convention and some other independent fundamental Baptists. The Houston Chronicle has been doing some great investigative work about men in church leadership abusing their power, it being excused, um, the, the victims being shamed and shoved out. And reaction to that has that I've seen is often, well, the conservative resurgence, the, con- the um, big conservative move within the Southern Baptist Convention around the same time as the moral majority, around the same time as these other things we're talking about, that was mostly good. But then there's this this dark underbelly of, of domestic violence and misogyny, but we can separate those things. There's the, there's the misogyny, 
Um, there's Paige Patterson telling women in his office, um, breaking them down to change their story about being sexually assaulted. And that's somehow different from the conservative resurgence that forced women out of uh, the pulpit. Women had been Southern Baptist preachers, then they couldn't be anymore. Forced professors out of Southern Baptist schools and seminaries if they were women who thought women should be ordained, if they were men who thought women could maybe preach, that part is somehow separable from from the misogyny. And again, to those of us on the outside, it really all seems like part of the same thing, but, but they genuinely don't see it that way. Some could uh, allege hypocrisy, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, being good people, moral people, uh, Christian values, and then just sort of allowing misogyny. I don't know. I guess maybe misogyny is okay, but but I don't know. Beating people up, you know, violence, whatever. You know, I mean, there's been a, there was a lot of violence in the Bible. That's for sure. It's it's not like it hasn't existed before. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are trying to keep democracy alive. Our guest today is Alicia Kaufman. We're talking about uh, something she knows about quite a bit, uh, white evangelical support for Donald Trump as compared to uh, the switch for Nixon. Uh, she co-wrote an article with uh, Anya Maria Basimir in the Washington Post and other places, of course, and the title was White Evangelicals Once Admitted They Were Wrong About Nixon, Will Trump Come Next? And a lot of people are wondering, what the heck? will it take for that to happen? I mean, people have wondered what's it going to take for gun legislation after, you know, uh, uh, Newtown when, what, 26 little kids were mowed down. If, if, if that didn't, you know, inspire, uh, uh, you know, r- real gun control, I don't know what the heck will. Now, there's something called Christianity Today, a magazine uh, that the CEO, the, the, one of his first acts, Timothy Dalrymple, he had an editorial that called out white Christians' long and lamentable history of silence, or worse. He wrote, white Christians have a long and lamentable history of silence when people of color are under attack. I have to ask, it seems to me that many hardcore Trump supporters who consider themselves active gospel-spreading con- uh, uh, Christians are really about you know, white control over blacks. And this, of course, relates to reproductive rights, I mean, they wouldn't consider it reproductive rights because, you know, women are supposed to be subservient, I guess, and equal rights for blacks and gay people. They hide this reality under the cover of zealous Christianity. You write that I see a lot of similarities between white evangelicals today and white Southerners during Reconstruction. I wonder if you could say more about that, please. Right. And this was not in the, the Washington Post piece. Ah. Um, I've I've read about it, talked about it elsewhere. It's something that I'm, I'm still formulating. And it's not just me. Um, there was a book about slaveholder Christianity. I believe the author was Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Uh, Jamar Tisby, an African-American, has also been making these connections. Slaveholder Christianity and then the lost cause religion after the end of the Civil War. Um, I was recently in a conversation about uh, American secularism and and how it has been defined and how it has grown and how the the enemy for for American secularism was any vestigial religious establishment any group not functioning as a formal establishment because as you noted at the beginning we can't have that constitutionally but any group that felt it is our job to care for the moral state of the country, a sense of cultural custodianship. Uh In American history, that's always been white. 
until very recently, it was Protestant. Mm-hmm. And a sense of when in American history were, were people in that group ever really threatened, not an imagined threat, oh, we're going to be taken over by Catholics, oh, our slaves might rise up against us, but actually displaced from their position of power. That happens during Reconstruction, when white oh, southern right. authorities, oh, when there's federal occupation of the South, when federal troops say, no, you can't treat black people that way, no, you can't impose these conditions. And there was a burning resentment, burning resentment on the part of southern whites, um, and it becomes known as the lost cause religion. They have a Confederate catechism rewriting history. Hmm. No, the war wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. We have always treated our Negroes well. And this motivated resentment, something has changed. The world, when it is set to rights, has this kind of order with white men at the top and and other people ranged below that. That is what should be. Any deviation from that is just wrong, and it's disrespectful, and we need to undo that. And this this sense of displacement and frustration at disrespect, I do see a lot of that both with the lost cause religion in Reconstruction and with many white evangelicals today, many of whom are in the South, in the same oh, place, yeah. oh, that yeah. have that resentment as the lost cause. Well, it does seem to be uh, somewhat uh, geographically linked. And I, I, I read a long time ago about something called the Redemption Movement, which arose directly from Reconstruction. Redemption. You know, just think about that word. It was, well, we had this imposed on us. It was just what you were describing. Now we're going to redeem the South redeem our old cultural values, and a great deal of violence against blacks uh, arose from that. And of course, the KKK and various uh, things like that uh, came out of the the rejection of of Reconstruction. They don't, they didn't want the federal Northern values imposed on them. And I, frankly, I can kind of understand that in some ways. I don't like their values imposed on me, quite frankly. And you talk about religious freedom. You know, it's in the Constitution. We all have a right to have our own religion, or none if we don't want that. He's often, Trump has often claimed that the left is a serious threat to what he considers religious freedom. I'm not sure what he means by that, but I get the impression that what he is for is the antithesis of religious freedom, that a certain religion can be imposed on everyone. There seems to be some confusion. You wrote that white Evangelicals are also convinced that they're victims of basically all cultural shifts since the 1960s, and Trump concerns their victimhood. I can see how that seems to be true. Say more about that, if you would, please. Your mention of religious freedom and how it means different things to different people, that was driven home to me here when I started at Baylor. This is just my fourth year, and when I've taught U.S history survey, uh, specifically U.S. since the Civil War, I've talked a lot about the American dream. And so on the Mm. first day of class, I've asked my students, draw the American dream. What does it look like to you? Um, In many cases, it looks like a suburban household, which works great with the the third book that I assigned in the semester, uh, Seth Allen's Family Values. It has that picture on the cover. But many of the students will also put a cross somewhere in the picture. And when asked to talk about it, they'll say, you know, religious freedom. And when they were saying that, when I started here, I heard religious freedom, and I thought of things like, yeah, freedom of, of all religious expressions. Like, of course we won't have a Muslim ban because religious freedom. Right. That's not what they meant at all. They meant the freedom to have Christian schools 
where they could require whatever they wanted to about prayer and who could teach there and what could be taught there, and the government had to leave them alone. So same term, completely different application and definition. And it was so different from my own that it took me about a year and a half to realize, oh, when they said that on the first day of class, that's what they meant. And, of course, my religious freedom as a... uh a Jewish American, I, you know, to have the government uh, using my tax dollars to pay to teach my kids, uh, you know, you have to be Christian. I might have a little problem with that. I don't, I don't see that as religious freedom myself. One of the big issues, it seems, that unites, well, Trump and a lot of evangelicals and is very politically powerful is Israel, American support for Israel. And I have a sense that the aggressiveness of evangelical support for Israel is really not about freedom of religion for Jews and Jewish rights, but more about the rapture. I wonder if you could comment on that, please. You must know a little bit about uh, that whole scenario. And, and, and you know, it's, it's the right wing that is much more supportive of the current state of Israel than any other sector, at least as far as I can tell. Your thoughts? Right. So there's a recent book on that by Dan Hummel. Um, I'm the the name of the book is escaping me, but it was just reviewed in Forward, um, and I was reading that yes. review last night. And it's I, I really recommend the book and the review, saying that yes, rapture's part of it, but it's more complicated than that. Um, different white evangelicals may have somewhat different ideas about what's going to happen at the end of the world and whether it's important for Jews to control a certain kind of territory, whether it would be better for them to convert to Christianity, or whether they're better off staying Jewish. Um, But one of the things that Hummel's book brings up is how um, factions within the Jewish state have reached out to white American evangelicals and cultivated a certain political alliance. It isn't just white Christians white evangelical Christians in their living rooms with their book of Revelation deciding, oh, this is what needs to happen in Israel. But it was uh, the state leaders of the state of Israel reaching out to them and cultivating them uh-huh. as a constituency um, in order to cement the ties between the United States and Israel for uh, military and foreign policy implications. So mm. it's complicated. Oh, it, well, most things are. And H.L. Uh, Mencken said, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. I think he was absolutely right. Well, when enough evangelical Christians took the off-ramp on Nixon, he had to resign. He had to resign. His support base just withered. Any chance of this starting to happen with Trump? Why or why not? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it mattered a lot for Nixon when that support dried up. Is it starting to happen uh, with this guy? It did matter with Nixon, although, and, and here I have to defer to people who, who lived it or have studied it more, evangelical erosion of support was not the leading edge. Um, it was loss of political support from Nixon. So some of the, the drop, um, I reached out to a political scientist friend to help me answer this question back with Nixon. Was it only elite opinion shifting? Because we have elite evangelical opinion against Trump now. Uh Did it ever filter down to the rank and file? And there was some evidence from the American National Election Studies from 1968 and then 1974 of an erosion of support. But was... Was that a cause of Nixon stepping away, or was that a, a downstream 
effect. Um, it is it is hard to say. Um, would evangelicals decide, oh, yeah, Trump was a bad guy after he was already ousted for some other mm-hmm. reason? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Um, would they then forget that they had ever learned that lesson six years later? Maybe. It could certainly <laughs> happen again. Yeah. I was talking earlier about the Washington Post moderated comment section, yeah. which means it's actually safe to read the comments there, uh-huh. which is which is great. And I was I was really amazed and pleased to see one from Wes Granberg Michelson, who was the chief legislative assistant for Mark Hatfield and wrote uh-huh. that speech uh-huh. that we were both quoting uh-huh. from. Nice. And he wrote that Hatfield was unique because he was a voice both within the Republican Party and the evangelical community. He took grief from both for his stands, but also had a widespread admiration which grew with time. The absence of such voices in both communities today is deafening. Something does seem to have changed. There were Republicans willing to vote for impeachment of Nixon. It's harder to imagine crossing party lines now. Those party lines have hardened, especially since 1994, Contract with America. There's graphs of how often do um, representatives and senators from different parties vote um, cast the same vote on a piece of legislation. Prior to 1994, there was a lot of that. Since then, almost none. They're just, they're so polarized. They're so entrenched in their camps. Voters also so polarized, so entrenched in their camps that it just seems much harder to imagine happening mm. now for evangelicals, for Republicans, for, for anybody shifting and doing the really hard work of admitting they were wrong. <laughs> And I wonder if any Democrat might be able to tap into that. Probably not. I have no idea. I have just no idea. Fascinating discussion. Very, very illuminating. Uh, uh, Alicia Kaufman, uh, assistant professor of history at Baylor University, author of The Christian Century and the Rise of the Protestant Mainline. Thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation.